On this episode of A Pot Upon a Hill, we're going to address the 13 colonies in the British Empire, 1607 all the way to 1754. This is period 2-1 of your notes. Here we go. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savagely. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. So we discussed uh, in a previous audio lecture about European exploration. So today we're going to hone in a little bit on uh, England's um, domination and colonization along the eastern coast of North America. And what better place to start is in a region territory called Virginia. Right, so that brings us to 1607, and the Jamestown Colony is the first permanent settlement founded by the Virginia Company. And the key word there is company. It's a basically a corporation. It's a joint stock company where there are multiple investors. They basically see this as an opportunity to get rich. They had fallen in love with this idea uh, and heard of the tales of the Aztecs with all their gold. So uh, North America is a place of riches. So a lot of people invest, and the people traveling find investors to say, hey, I can bring you a lot of profits if you believe in this, this idea. So um, the location and the incompetency of those on this trip really put Jamestown in jeopardy. And that's in large part because most of the men on this trip were not laborers. Right. They were uh, of middle upper, class, yeah, upper middle, middle to class. Upper class and yep. their, their idea was um, we don't need to bring um, large game in terms equipment. of yeah, equipment. We don't need to bring any cows or animals to help create farming. Right. No, we're just going to come here. They brought um, materials to test for metal. Right. And th that was their primary focus on get, get rich uh, quick scheme was their thought process. And because of that, very few of them were able to have the discipline or the mindset that would help them survive. And the winters became very dangerous. Also, and particularly in this region, the location is not very conducive to uh, simple or superficial forms of farming. You would have to have some expertise in tilling the soil, expertise in which the Native American population would have, and these middle-class gentrymen would not. So they were kind of uh, doomed from the start, and it took two men in particular that are both highlighted in your notes, John Smith and John Rolfe. Now, don't get confused with, <laughs> with the first name. I know they're the same, but they're totally different people. John Smith was one of the first primary leaders in Jamestown, and he's going to take a more draconian or militaristic methods to kind of keep people in line because at this point there were a lot of deserters, there were a lot of people just kind of fending for themselves. When you have insecurity and people are in survival mode, a lot of these guys, uh, the, the, the cohesion that is necessary for any kind of thriving civilization breaks down. So John Smith is going to be credited for imposing harsh yet necessary rule over these settlers. Yeah, he was a career soldier and mercenary all throughout Europe. So when he arrived, he was able to establish some more uh, strict order to what was going on. And, and the second man, John Rolfe, he was uh, just a, an entrepreneur, I guess you could say. He came with the hopes of being successful, and he brought with him a strain of tobacco 
that helped save the Jamestown colony because without that, it would not have taken hold, it would not have been profitable, and it, that was the one crop that became the cash crop which allowed it to thrive. And a, a large part of the settlement struggling was they set up along the James River, but um, the difficulty is finding fresh water, okay? So salt water polluting all their uh, wells. It was a struggle to survive for the first few years. So 1607 is when it's founded. By the time we get to 1624, only a third of the people that have traveled there have survived, and the Virginia Company is in heavy debt. So this leads to the next process. Uh, of and, dis and despite the, f the initial failures, the royal uh, crown sees the value in keeping uh, Jamestown up and running, especially with the new strand of tobacco that Mr. Copeland was mentioning. So what King James is going to do is he's going to revoke, revoke the private charter, which is basically a private contract that authorizes uh, the joint stock company ownership, and he will take direct control over the colony, and he'll name it Virginia. So in order to kind of uh, keep it going, he needs people to settle there. And how he's going to do it, he's going to, um, with the help of other aristocrats, establish an institution known as the House of Burgesses in 1619. You could think of that as the first major or permanent legislative institution in Virginia at the time, and he's going to have a policy uh, that will open up the way called the headright system, which we will mention later on throughout this lecture. Yeah, the House of Burgesses is really the beginning of representative government in, in the Americas. All right, and that brings us to Maryland. So Maryland's slightly different in um, method, but similar in terms of the goal. In 1632, King Charles divides Virginia, so the top half becomes known as the proprietary colony of Maryland. So this is given to Lord George Calvert, uh, excuse me, George Calvert, who's known as Lord Baltimore, and it's this region of the Chesapeake which becomes a proprietary colony separate from the uh, joint stock company running, it means one person is in charge, and that is this Lord Baltimore. And he creates what is known as a haven for Catholics. It's the first place where Catholics can go uh, knowing that they will not be persecuted. Okay, um, this culminates in, I guess, the passage of what's known as the Act of Toleration by Cecil, um, his son, who persuades the Colonial Assembly to pass that act. So it's the first colonial law that's granting religious freedom to all Christians, but the interesting thing is only Christians are, are mentioned. It's not religious freedom, but religious right. toleration of Christians. So if you are someone who does not believe in the divinity of Jesus, the death penalty is something that could be issued to you. And this act was later repealed after a Protestant revolt, and some of the Catholics are stripped of their rights. But it is originally established as a haven for Catholics, Maryland, and that's who Lord Baltimore brings to that region. So keep this in mind, my AP scholars. Um, when we talk about religious diversity, especially in the 16, 17, 18, 1900s, I would even go as far as saying the 20th century mm -hmm. into 21st century, we're talking diversity within the major religion of Christianity. And, and you need to understand that because sometimes we say diversity and we, 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 we just think of a variety of different religions, but that's not the case, especially in our country and our nation's development. And Europe being dominated by the Catholic religion for so long, this is going to be dominated, uh, our, and, um, excuse me, our continent, North America, is going to be dominated by Protestant religion with smaller uh, factions of Catholics. So like how Maryland was formed, um, the Carolinas in, in, is going to be formed in a similar manner. By 1666, King Charles II will give land um, 
uh, between Virginia and in Spanish-owned Florida to eight proprietors or individuals that are going to have sole ownership of these regions. In 1729, you have South and North Carolina. They will eventually become royal colonies from the original grant. 1670, English planters from Barbados will settle in South Carolina, and they will kind of raise what we know as rice plantations. Now, this amount of settlers is going to be the reason why uh, South and North Carolina will eventually start to divide as there's more population. It becomes more difficult to run, rule over people, so we start to have uh, the colonies kind of split, very similar to like cells in, in biology. They just slowly form as one, and then they kind of uh, divide into many. English planters, of course, will uh, from Virginia will settle into North Carolina. Why? The land that is taken from tobacco farms are, is going to be used up. This is something to kind of keep in mind. You're going to have more of the aristocratic upper elite maintain status and proprietor ownership along the East Coast. The small tobacco farmers are going to have to be pushed out at west or south. And so a lot of small tobacco farmers are going to settle in North Carolina. By the 18th century, North Carolina will earn the reputa reputation for being democratic and autonomous because of the particular demographic of settlers there. You're getting a lot more working class farmers there, a lot of smaller farmers there. So you're beginning to see different characteristics of colonies based on their historical uh, origins. And, and with land specifically in England being so scarce, the promise of the New World, specifically our country, for the next 200 years becomes a place where you can start fresh and get land of your own because that is your ticket to moving up the social ladder. Land was not only uh, scarce, but the population also was exponentially increasing Incredibly during this time. Incredibly dense in the cities of You know, of a lot of people in prison were just put there because they couldn't pay debt, and that leads us to our next colony. Yeah, so Georgia, almost like later on Australia is established, mm -hmm. is the purpose was um, established in 1732, colony of Georgia is specifically for the overcrowded English prison population, as well as the Spanish of the South are creeping into Florida and that region, and they want to check the movement of the Spanish exploration moving north. So let's figure, hey, put the prisoners there, that will establish some type of buffer zone for preventing them from moving up. A year later, James Oglethorpe, he founds the settlement, and Savannah is the um, capital. And this acts as its very first government. They immediately put strict restrictions on things like rum, gambling, and slavery because of the population that is inhabiting them. They don't trust them to do things the way in which they would had they been upstanding citizens. These are prisoners. So they put strict uh, rules on, us, on this population. It ends up uh, being unsuccessful. The col colony struggles to thrive and economically goes defunct where the government uh, of the crown ends up having to lift them out of their economic situation. So when the colony of Georgia is given back to the crown, it is, uh, they eliminate the restrictions, and now all of a sudden they're trying to emulate the economy that is found in South Carolina just to the north. So for a large part of our early history in America, the 13 colonies, South Carolina, excuse me, Georgia is the poorest of those because it got the late start and it started off with such economic restrictions. So that's a brief overview of how each of the southern colonies kind of formed. And just keep in mind that each of them are going to have slightly different characteristics because when we talk about the American Revolution, uh, th th they're going to have different positions on how to handle with the crown. Uh, and we'll talk about that later on. So let's just kind of go over a general overview of what was life in colonial south. So Granted, they all have differences, but generally speaking, how are they all kind of similar? And the number one word you should think of when you think of the South is feudalistic. 
that, that basically means the, the, the primary measurement of power and wealth in society was based on property. That was it, land, property. Life, liberty, and property. Right. And there were several reasons for this. One, as we mentioned earlier, was the head right system. So it was a policy in which uh, the government or the crown would offer 50 acres to whomever can afford the voyage. This would not only uh, encourage settlement, which would maintain um, uh, farmers and, and extract more tobacco for the crown in a mercantilistic uh, economic system, but as we mentioned before, there's a popula population increase. And there's something to gain by getting rid of some of these excess laborers there. So Anyone who was able to afford that would get 50 acres to whomever can afford voyage. Yeah, and in addition to that, there are others that are looking for a journey, but they can't pay that fee. So what they find is, hey, I'm an investor. I want poor people going over to land. I'll pay your trip. But when you land in the new right. uh, in that new territory over in America, you are going to be an indentured servant. So their trip is paid for, and this really kicks off shortly after the House of Burgesses is established in 1619, and they later they basically become slaves to the land. Right. All right, and you are to pay off your duty at a certain st standpoint. But um, there's a lot of varying rules in terms of how long they're forced to do it. But many of them it was five years or so in terms of if you work on this land for five years, you will now get the opportunity for your own freedom. Okay, um, This slave system that we are familiar with later on in our history was not established until the latter half of the 17th century in a large part because of the lack of regulation, and it was too expensive to travel all the way across from, from, uh, from Africa. And, and at this point in the early 1600s, there's very little difference between indentured servants and slaves because even if you're contracted as an indentured servant, by the time your five or seven year contract's up, many of them didn't have enough capital money or tools or, or, or means skills. Uh, or skills or means of transporting west and starting to farm on their own. So they would have no choice but to kind of renew their contracts. So to compare this with uh, Spain or how the Spaniards or the conquistadors did in, in, in South America, there wasn't an available labor source in North America, long short of it, right? There were scattered Indian, Indian tribes, but we had to basically outsource a lot of our laborers here in the beginning of our, of our country's development. So yeah. just keep that in mind. Yeah, so the poor in Europe were given this story of come to America where there are great riches, and just getting here, get, you know, the emphasis was getting them to America, and then there they would be lo locked in this system where many of them have difficulty getting out of. And that's where we start to see this distinction between the landowning class known as the larger farmers, and then some of those servants slash slaves and the indentured servant um, population later became freed, and they're forced to move out to the frontier, but they have very little success. So you see the, the rivalry between the larger farmers and the smaller farmers starting to established because the larger farmers have the relationships with the elite and the established of the government in the House of Burgesses and they're getting um, basically favorable, uh, favorable treatment. And these large farmers are going to probably be the earlier ones to come and they're also going to be uh, settling along the coastline of the Atlantic to have access to those markets that they can sell abroad. Mm. What's interesting about tobacco however is that when that plant gets grown if you're not good at crop rotation you're going to drain all the nutrients that soil that will force you to want to move to other fertile land. So you're going to begin to see that the, the large farmers are going to be established along the coastline, but they're going to further push out the smaller farmers more out west, more out west, because of the poor, the poor, um, the poor areas and poor choices of land out there. Yeah, and it, it's really just them trying to control the uh, economic situation and they have the prime real estate, the easiest access to the transportation of the rivers and the coast, 
and that becomes a major issue where the poorer farmers show up and there's just not enough land, not what they, not the opportunity that they were seeking. Right, and that brings us to the major tension and uh, I guess crisis point of this time period was right. in 1676, right. and that is known as Bacon's Rebellion. Yeah, this is a good example of what we're kind of talking about generally bet- uh, between the tension between large farmers and small farmers. So in, in 1676, there are, there are going to be a series of conflicts along the frontier between uh, the colonial poor and the Amerindian tribes. Uh, a lot of them because of differences in culture and differences of language, there's going to be a lot of violence on both sides, both camps. And because of that, um, Virginia Governor Berkeley, the one of the upper class large farmer establishment, think of him as like, you know, along the coastline of Virginia, he's a little de- de- detached from the, the personal fights and everyday fights that are happening. He wants to keep the peace. So he's going to broker some sort of arrangement with the Amerindians by basically saying, you know, you're allowed to keep your land and the colonial poor is no longer able to expand westward. And you would think that's a good thing, but the farmers feel really rejected. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're from the perspective of a poor farmer, you've come to America, you finally have the opportunity right. to get right. your own land. Right. You want to go out to that frontier right. and seize it. Right. The only thing in your way is the American Indians. So there are some clashes that ensue. But the issue is the people that are already benefiting from the peace that is going on, the right. people that have all their land, they don't need any more. They're, the they're saying, you're possibly ruining, you're right. threatening what we have. If you instigate with the natives, they could come and attack us. You're making things worse for us. You are no longer allowed to settle there. And that's the distinction is that they are not only concerned about peace for the sake of peace. They're concerned about Survival. if you disrupt the peace, right. you could ruin what we have here. We are not as, The English settlers are not established here. The, the elite knows how tenable their power structures are. And it's very possible that if the Amer- Amerindian tribes united, they could not only take out the colonial poor, but also the colonial elite as well. So it's in Berkeley's best interest to keep the colonial poor unhappy and the Amerindians happy. And that's where Nathaniel Bacon um, comes into play, is that he is the galvanizing force. He takes the poor farmers, he takes the indentured servers, and he takes the slaves, slaves, brings them all together and says, we are going to be left behind if we allow the elites to govern and favor themselves over us. We came here for opportunity, we came here for land, and we were being denied that. So he starts a rebellion, and he turns on the colonial elite. They attack Jamestown. They end up capturing it and almost burning it all down um, while the rebellion is taking place. But because he is the one person that everyone trusted to lead them, once he passes away during the rebellion, shortly after it is suppressed because he was the person that they looked to for leadership. They were able to, um, the elite were able to separate the factions once his death occurred. And this shows the establishment or the elites two things. One, if they are not more careful, the colonial poor can easily overthrow society and establish it to, to their liking. And that really spooks them, especially the ones who are more aristocratic along the coastline. The second thing that really scares them is that not only this could be uh, eas- easily done, but it could be easily done with the collaboration of African slaves. There was a collaboration between black African slaves and white indentured servants. So this idea that the masses, both black and white, if they are collaborating and they're cooperating with each other, they could easily take and overthrow the very, very small few of people who are uh, owning the feudalistic land at this yeah. time. And, and the system, the, the men in power at this time are really fearful of that force. And that's why they start to put things in place to make sure this doesn't happen again. And that is where we come to the concept of slavery becoming institutionalized into our government here in the American colonies. By 1750, 
Virginia's population is over half slave. Two-thirds of South Carolina's population is slaves by 1750 for a few reasons, okay? The first is a reduced migration. The workforce, those indentured servants that they had had for so long, well, the population in England was stable, all right? Wages had improved in right. England. So the, the push factors for those migrants to it leave is now England, being dissolved. Yeah, that it, it started to evaporate. So all of a sudden, where's our labor force? We need to bring in more slaves. So that increases it. Plus, when you view a certain group of people as inherently weaker, there's not a need or a desire to give them the rights that they feel they deserve. So the dependable work workforce that the slaves represented was that they didn't question things as much because they right. weren't allowed to. Right. They were viewed as animals, as savages, not as human beings. The poor whites had made way too many political demands, the desire to vote and contribute. They wanted representation in the House of Burgesses. These right. are things they weren't willing to give them. All right, so the dependable workforce was the necessity of the political demands because the Europeans coming from England, um, uh, the whites coming from England, they're familiar with representation and the fights and the struggle of what they wanted to be able to make sure that they were being treated fairly. And the African slave was not coming from that background. So they did not understand the political uh, system that they were thrown into. And of course, the most important fact is that it was cheap labor. These cash crops required many, many unskilled laborers to man the fields to make sure that this cash crop is what kept Jamestown afloat and other colonies afloat. We were going to be successful only if we had as much skilled, unskilled labor, cheap labor, as um, many as we needed to sustain the economy. Now, unfortunately, what also begins to happen is that in order to kind of continue this type of institutionalization of slavery, laws are going to have to be enacted to enforce them. And this is actually the really, this is a really horrifying part of our history. As we mentioned before in previous podcasts, slavery was never uh, based primarily on race, but we're now beginning to see our nation being founded upon uh, categorization on race. So we start to have laws for bondage for life. So before this, a slave could earn his or her freedom, but now laws in throughout at various sectors of the South, as well as the North, you are, once you are a slave, you are always a slave. Later on, there will be a concept known as inherited bondage, which is even more terrifying. It's the children of these slaves are now going to be inherently slaves themselves. So it's no longer a condition upon which you get as a result of war or contraband. Now you are pe having people being bred for and only for slavery. And, and that if you're someone growing up in this time period, and the laws are established to encourage your thinking along the lines of, oh, well, these people are slaves because of who they are. Right. If, you're, if you can right. be born into something, right. what, what did a child do to right. deserve that? Right. right. So the inherited aspect right. of it is they themselves right. are deserving of this treatment right. because of somehow they are, uh, like I said, right. subhuman or less, uh, more of a savage than the, uh, the, um, the white population, and, and, which is more civilized. And remember, Nathaniel Bacon's rebellion showed the rich elite that if there was cooperation between the poor white and the poor black, then this might be bad. This is threatening to them. So they had the to actually being, convince yeah. and create narratives for the poor whites to convince poor whites that they are not at maybe as better as the rich elite, white elite. But they're at least better than the, the poor blacks, I mean, the, the African slaves. And we're going to have laws that even encourage that you can have slavery despite the concept of salvation that is found in our Christian roots. So you first convince a large population of people that blacks are inherently subhuman. You, get, you don't have the likelihood of a Nathaniel Bacon's rebellion happening again. Exactly. And that 
uh, institutionalization of that viewpoint where everyone in the society um, believes in it. And it also, if you're a poor white, you should believe in it too because then that keeps you from being put in those conditions and being part of the slavery. You know, it's one of the things that uh, creates the institution uh, of slavery, creates this impact on all the colonies because of the triangular trade between West Africa, the um, Caribbean, the Europe, and the United States. It's a situation where that trade system fuels the economy for the next 100, 150 years. And you see it happening all the way from Massachusetts all the way down to Virginia and Maryland as well. So one of the important things to focus on is this concept of the separation and the division within the poor classes in our society. It happens from the very beginning. Right, and it was and socially constructed. It, in, in, in other words, it wasn't natural, yes. right? It was something put in place. You had to have laws. You would have people to enforce those laws. And then over time, if you do it long enough, yeah. it's going to become the culture. People are going to unconsciously just feel superior to another person based on race. It did not happen naturally. It wasn't one day a bunch of white people were like, I'm naturally superior to that of black people. Yeah. And when those laws are put in place, as you said, over time, it also encourages this feeling of when you question why, it's like, oh, that's the way it's always been. Right. When Correct. The understanding the full context here, this is the origin of this, all right? And fast, for, uh, fast forward 200 years, Dr. King talks about the fact that rich white men use this to keep poor white men from questioning the conditions they're in because as bad as things are for you, at least you're not black. That was an important argument that King made to realize we are more alike than we are different. And the reason why we're harping on this so much right now is because as AP scholars, you're gonna have to make constant connections between the past as well as the present. We cannot talk about race without talking about land as we mentioned before. And we cannot talk about race without also talking about social class. They are inevitably twined, and they have always been, and it starts here. ...over the Hudson River, takes it from Governor Stuyvesant, and then shortly after, James orders the English administrators to tolerate the Dutch residents. They're allowed to live there, but the uh, freedom of religion that we are familiar with from the First Amendment starts really here where um, control politically doesn't mean that we can't allow intermingling of different citizens. So their language, their religion, will allow it to happen. The most important thing for us is we control the waterways. We're, we're making money from this. How they want to live is, is, is indifferent to us. So James allows a representative assembly in New York under heavy pressure from the Puritans in the Northeast. That uh, representative body is important to them, that self-government principle is something that they are reliant on, um, and that later comes into play in the revolution, of course. And uh, eventually they think that New York is a little too big to rule all one thing, so he splits it into two regions, two parts. So you have uh, the proprietorship under Sir George Cartier and Lord John Berkeley, unknown as New York, and then the southern part becomes known as the Royal Colony of New Jersey, and that's in 1702 when the split occurs. Um, as we move out more west, we begin to see other colonies develop as well. So in 1681, the crown will pay a debt to William Penn's father in the form of a royal grant. So you can think of William Penn's father as also proprietor, and his son, William Penn, will kind of found what will later be called Pennsylvania, which means Penn's Woods mm -hmm. um, in, in, in Dutch. So William Penn was a Quaker. Uh, or another way of saying it was the Religious Society of Friends. There, there must be a distinction here, and we'll talk a little bit about religion uh, later on. Um, but Quakers are 
a group of Christians that are non-denominational and they have a very progressive or liberal mm-hmm. take on uh, Christianity. So they believe that religious authority would be derived within individual souls. So there's no institutions, there's no Bible that's going to be governing you, there's no church clergy or hierarchy determining you. Know you you know even. right yeah. from wrong. Mm-hmm. Now the reason why we were saying that is because this is naturally going to promote equality between not only individuals but men and women. And it's also going to promote nonviolence. Okay? Pacifists. Pacifists. In no, in no circumstance is violence an option for them. And because of this, and they're not going to, they're going to be refused military service, especially under the crown, they're often going to be subject to per, per, uh, persecution in England because of these radical viewpoints. So because of this, Penn is going to take him and his fellow followers to a place called Pennsylvania, and he's going to initiate what he would call as a holy experiment, kind of from the the, the, the ashes or the or the or the time period of the Enlightenment. Mm. He's kind of going to approach this colony as one as a scientist would in a laboratory. Yeah, it's if, almost like a. Um if he provides certain conditions, if he provides certain uh, situations in an environment, he could actually kind of create some sort of utopia. And it was his chance to kind of use his land to provide not only re- religious refuge to all, but he wants to also promote some of these liberal ideas that we mentioned in government. So Liberal be- meaning changing the status quo so of be- society. So because of this, Penn and his personal over over uh, his, over his leadership over the development of this colony, he's going to be this this colony is going to be very much known for its progressivism, such as he's going to create grid systems that are more equitable and and reasonable um, in terms of land distribution. He's going to provide grants not only to uh, white Christians but also to Native Americans. He's also going to develop robust laws in place and uh, earlier form of constitution. So we kind of often think of Pennsylvania as one of the more progressive uh, colonies in the new world how delaware kind of comes to be is actually very similar to how new york and new jersey kind of split off like most of the colonies it gets too big to govern so over time delaware kind of uh, branches off and becomes a colony of itself and it's important to remember with maryland the act of toleration is very different than total toleration of all right. religions Correct. that was specifically in maryland right. only christians will right. tolerate you as long as you believe in right. your lord and savior jesus christ however Pennsylvania is welcoming of all. Right. Well, whoever you are, we believe that you have an opportunity to live here, and we will uh, welcome you with open arms. So that's it's very unique, Pennsylvania, compared to the other colonies, because almost all the other colonies, Christianity is a major role, especially in the New England colonies, which we'll get into next, that uh, really promotes Puritanism, Protestantism, become connected with the government. So long short of it, you'd think you can expect that each colonies have their own characteristics, but also we, we're, we're kind of like on a a spectrum, really, ranging from status quo, feudalistic, old-timey, conservative thought, oppressive by nature, now, as we t- discussed with the institutionalized of slavery, racist, but then on the other side of it, you've got progressivism, humanitarianism, uh, trying out new ideas, entrepreneurship, and my friends, the, this is pretty much what makes up America. We're schizophrenic in nature, and you can see elements of this traced all the way back to the varying colonies of, uh, of North America. Yeah. So that's where we'll stop today, and we'll come back for the second half of period 2-1 notes, uh, starting with the middle colonies and close, New England colonies, excuse me, and closing out with the lifestyles amongst all of them. Have a good one.